Hey everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse in Tucson, Arizona, and I have a confession. I am terrified about climate change, like probably in an unhealthy way. For the two or three of you who have read my articles in Slate Magazine for the last few years, this probably isn't much of a surprise. When there's a big weather event or a new scary climate study comes out, it's my job as a meteorologist with some little bit of training in climate science to dive into the darkness and remind my readers that we did this. It's not really the rising temperatures, though, that worry me. I mean, let's face it, it's pretty nice when you can wear shorts on Christmas Eve. It's more of the gradually escalating impacts on people and ecosystems that don't always make the mainstream news. It's the loss of entire coral reefs in remote islands in the Central Pacific in just a few weeks. It's scientists gaping at their computer screens as Arctic sea ice hits daily record low after daily record low, possibly on its way to the first largely ice-free summer in 100,000 years later this year. It's the constant reminder on Twitter, in the comment section, that this problem is so huge and so daunting that the reaction of many people, even those who care about the environment, is to just shut down. There is no way to do any of these stories justice in a few hundred words on a blog post. So that's why I wanted to start a podcast. This is that podcast. In this inaugural episode of Warm Regards, we're going to explain why each of us is fixated on this problem and where we think climate communication should go from here. So let's get right to it. Joining me will be my two co-hosts for this journey, wherever it leads us. First, from Orono, Maine, is Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey. And we have Andy Redkin of the New York Times, who's a senior fellow for environmental understanding at Pace University. Joining us from the village of Cold Spring, New York, in the Hudson Valley. Hey, Andy. It's good to be with you. So, Jacqueline, a paleoecologist could pursue pretty much anything. Um, What made you want to study climate? I actually originally became interested in the past because of my interests in the ecosystems of the present. And I, the more I tried to try to get some sense of where to restore modern ecosystems to, I kept pushing that baseline further and further back. And I was never really able to find a time or a place where there was a lot of stability in ecosystems. And um, the whole idea of a baseline to me, as I, as I started learning more about ecology and conservation, just started becoming so fraught um, with issues. And so the more I studied the past, the further and further back I went, and I started to get more interested in change rather than some sort of static view of how the landscape should look. And um, once you start looking at really long time scales, climate just becomes the the story, right? I mean, at over thousands of years and thousands of square miles, climate is really what determines where most things live. And, um, and so for me, it just became this fundamental building block of the ecosystems that we see outside. So for me, that's understanding the past is what made contemporary climate change so alarming because we what we're doing to the planet is is pushing the Earth system out of this natural range of variability that's gone on for thousands or even millions of years. And so 
the changes I've seen in the past put the changes we're seeing now in this really stark contrast. And so that's how I got really obsessed with climate change. So Andy, uh, you, you've been doing this for, for a while, and um, I'm just curious, how, how is it possible to focus on such a tough story for so long? I actually don't know the answer because, you know, I, I grew up wanting to be Jacques Cousteau in the 60s. Um, I became clear that it became clear to me that I didn't have the, the gumption and focus to get a PhD and become a scientist. I became a science writer, but the things that interested me were mostly um, biology and I uh, mostly marine. And, and then it was in the mid 80s. I had started as a science journalist uh, at a magazine and Cold War was still happening and uh, nuclear winter, the idea that putting a bunch of stuff in the atmosphere by burning hundreds of cities, a great thought there, um, would chill the planet break down agriculture, disrupt ecosystems. And, and, and I wrote this like 6,000 word piece on nuclear winter. And, and that's when I first went to see climate models and in Boulder, met Steve Schneider, one of the early climate scientists and, and got tugged in by this puzzle. And, and the, the computers they were using were all, or had already been, were already being used at that point in the mid eighties um, to study climate, global warming and the greenhouse effect, but they'd been turned temporarily to study uh, climate effects of nuclear war. And then by 1988, that was the year Jim Hansen was testifying and and uh, we had a record heat wave here at that time and uh, Yellowstone was on fire and and I wrote a, my first long cover story. And, you know, I still, I don't think I knew at that point, hey, you're going to spend a big chunk of your career writing about this issue. But so it was like this journey that I didn't pursue, but it kind of pursued me. It's like the Al Pacino Godfather, I think it was Godfather 3, where he says, you keep pulling me back in. And you know the IPCC happened, and the and the Earth Summit happened, and and I started just kind of. It became the thing that dominated um, what I thought about, and and I still to this day people say, you know, how can you possibly be um, writing about something so long? And it's incredibly interesting, and I've really focused a lot on you know why, what are the aspects of this phenomenon that make me not like wake up with my hair on fire and and um you know shivering and not willing to go on an airplane and we, we could talk more about our different feelings about the issue but part of it is just the uh, the intellectual aspect of it is definitely there that it's uh, the biggest story ever and it's you know that's what's kept me at it for all this time so eric you know most of the meteorologists i know are fixated on time scales of like well hours weeks at the most and then seasonal forecast, but then, so what made you migrate into being a climate change geek in, in, in essence? Well, I, I, I've, I've always been interested in weather, of course. Um, I mean, I grew up in Kansas where that's pretty much all there is to do. Um, you know, I, I realized, I guess from a very early age, you know, my, my, my parents, um, my, my whole family was, was involved in, in agriculture or, or around agriculture. Um, my whole childhood. Um, and I, and I just realized, you know, weather is it, you know, just like Jacqueline said, um, um, in a, in a somewhat weirdly deterministic way, we all exist the way we do because of the weather and the weather exists the way it does because of climate. So, um, it, it, it just, 
you know, as I started to get a little bit further into, um, you know, university studies of meteorology, which is almost 100% math, um, I wanted to, I wanted to think about a little bit more, what does this actually mean? (laughs) Because it's crazy, you know, when you're studying differential equations to try to somehow translate that into how people perceive the forecast that you generate based on those equations and climate was it for me to just get straight to it and um, it's more predictable over a time scale where you can also take action in in um, in advance so you know if you have an El Nino and you know that this particular region of the world is particularly prone to drought that tells you a lot and that gives you a lot of power. Um, and that's just climate variability. So if we go way out to climate change, it's so powerful to have the knowledge that we do um, and then to study as well why we're not doing anything with that knowledge, really. You know, it, it, it's, it's just fascinating to me in a super morbid way. And Jacqueline, um, so the first time I talked to you, I think, was last year around this time when I was researching uh, uh, for, a, for an article in, in Rolling Stone. And you told me in that interview that what's happening right now, the rate of change of carbon dioxide is unprecedented in all of Earth's history, like geological history? I, I Well, I probably wouldn't have said that per se. Um, okay. because Maybe of... that was just my <laughs> mind leaping. To... <laughs> um, there are a couple of times in the past when we've had really large increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, you know, the I really hope at some point soon we talk about the letters P, E, T, and M, um, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, um, which is increasingly looking like a, a good analog roughly 35 million years ago for what we might be looking at in the next century. Um, you know, there have been periods, even just coming out of the end of the last ice age, roughly 12,000 years ago, where we've had several degrees warming in a century and increases in CO2 that may be roughly on the order of the rate and, and possibly uh, magnitude of, of what we're seeing, but the starting point was different, right? We went from cold to warm. Um, so looking in, at periods in the past, like the PETM, where we w- went from warm to warm, might be a better analog. The problem is they're so far back in the geologic record that it's really hard to get a handle on exactly how quickly they happened. But there's some evidence that suggests that that abrupt warm period, which you know we would have seen a four to eight degrees Celsius warming, uh, you know, Tropical plants from Florida show up in, in fossils in Wyoming. Yeah, and this is you know. sort of worst case scenario for the next hundred years right now. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's sort of like the, you know, if you think about the IPCC, all the different various climate projections, and, and there's always this range of, of these these lines that you can follow, and we always end up being on the most extreme trajectory. Um, you know, so the so looking for past analogs is can be tricky because it's hard to pin down exactly how quickly things happened in a hard rock record. Um, so, you know, is it, it's possible that what we're doing is it, we're adding more CO2 and at a faster rate than any time in geologic history. Um, there are periods of time that may be good analogs, um, whether that's, uh, you know, faster than what we're seeing now or not. In the end, it doesn't really matter because those were all 
you know, different processes than today. Um, for the first time, really, were you know the, the major players. For the first time for a couple billion years, organisms are the ones changing the atmosphere again um, on a large scale. Um, that hasn't happened since the first oxygen was being added to the atmosphere. So, um, yeah, the the past can can offer context and it can offer analogs, um, but either way, the you know we we live in a fundamentally different world than than the age of the dinosaurs or um, you know than the the Paleocene. Yeah, so so the conclusion here, you know, from from Andy and and also from you, Jacqueline, is that it, this is crazy talk that we're, we're we're going through right now. And how do we how do how do we talk about that? How how what's what's the best way that you guys have found in your own personal life um, to talk about what's happening at the same time, realizing that emissions are still increasing, like we're still putting not only more each year, but but each year we're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than the last year. And like we're, we're still going up, and even as all the science is coming through the line. Um, so like, where did we go wrong? <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting because I kind of just did both versions of, of you know, you asked the question, how do you communicate this stuff? And I, I sort of did I did two things that I think are very emblematic, at least of how I approach this situation. The first one is using the past as context, right? You know, talking about the geologic record and how today's uh, patterns are, are can be, you know, when you place them in the context of the past, how different everything seems. Um, and, you know, Al Gore famously does this, right, with the the carbon dioxide record in an inconvenient truth that, you know, to the point where now it's almost not even considered an effective metaphor anymore with the, the little, um, the little elevator he's, he stood on to sort of go up off the, off the chart. The first is like using, using the past as context. But the other thing I did was I bet hedged with you, right? I was like, well, did I say that? Or is that really, you know, I was second guessing myself like, oh. But then you came around <laughs> at the end and you're like, yeah, well, you know, there were these bacteria like 2 billion years ago that were as powerful as us, but you know, pretty much nothing else since. So it's like, yes. Except maybe a meteor, I, was... I don't know. But, no, yeah. I, but here is, this is kind of like the, the issue here is that we're all communicating to ourselves and we, we all love the science. And so we have to figure out, well, that, let me just rephrase what I'm going to say. The, 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 the scariest science, the thing that really made me freak out and make my hair turn on fire, catch on fire, Eric, uh, wasn't the glaciology or any of the other stuff, you know, standing on the sea ice at the North pole, uh, while it's like making noises under you. It was when I, in like 2006 is when I started writing about the behavioral sciences, which, um, which demonstrated so powerfully that the thing I'd been doing for the last 20 years, writing prize-winning, you know, magazine and newspaper articles, not totally worthless, but that most of the time information doesn't matter. That, that for most people, you, if you have a predisposition or a certain personality or a certain kind of you know, there, there, there's some pretty primal differences between liberals and libertarians in many ways. Uh, the sort of group huggers and and uh, edge pushers and go it aloneers. And, and when I started to learn that science, it was like, and I realized that I hadn't. It was like, wow, I how could I possibly have uh, spent these twenty years thinking that if I just write about sea ice better, it'll s- save the world. So, so, uh, and I think we've all. I'm sure you but both. But that's have an, had that I mean, that's a natural. Kind of, 
Yeah, that's a natural thing to think, though, because it's like, well, if I just learn more about this, then I will know what to do. And it's just that's not how our brains work with this specific problem or or maybe yeah i mean i guess well, maybe it is climate change i don't know i think it, well, i think it's how some people's brains work though right i mean because and the problem is the people you know you've got communicators who are trained to communicate effectively and you've got scientists who might not be trained to communicate effectively but are at least trained to go through the the iterative process of the scientific method and you know even with all of our biases we're supposed to be swayed by data, right? I mean, at the end of the day, um, and we're not always great about that, but I think yeah, we're, but enter we're at least trained. All of, <clears throat> enter all of Twitter, though, yeah. right? <laughs> right, well, yeah, or even like the fact that I'm not just a scientist, I'm also an educator, right? So I, I have to, at some level, believe that giving people more information will help them, right? Or will be useful. And then you run smack into, you know, the, the, the behavioral sciences, as Andy said, that tell you that, whether or not people listen to you or whether or not people give you confer upon you any authority has so much to do with their identities and your identities and um and it's so hard it's like i'm i'm a teacher scholar right like information gathering and dissemination is my job and i have to believe that on some level that's useful oh totally but and, 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 and it's it... but it also it's like but then how how you know how so how do we get better at that well, that's, uh, I think part of it is, well, definitely listening. And uh, I hope listeners to the podcast will weigh in with their questions and ideas and reactions as we go forward. The um, I've seen many situations where um, scientists or journalists succeed best by um, making sure you're having an interactive exchange with your audience, whether it's in a room or on a blog. I mean, and well, you're great at you're great at that, Andy. Yeah, I but mean, but that's but what your blog is? Yeah, but see, here's the paradox. You know, my blog is for that tribe of people who think reality matters. When in fact, in society, you can you can have a much there are much bigger, busier blogs at both ends of the spectrum um, that um, are there for it's like free food and comfy drinks for people who are like you, and it's a place to go to be validated. See, we mo- we're so busy and. And that we use our tribal identities, you know, and here I'm just parroting what I've learned from people like Dan Kane and others. Uh, he's at Yale. His cultural cognition website is a must must visit place if you want to have a cold shower, uh, intellectual shower. It, it, but it, at the same time, it's like, so I can be reality-based and, and, and note the complexities in the science and in social sciences and, and in the technical options of, for energy and and have a small audience of people who are engaged, or I could be uh, shouting, shouting really loudly at, at one end or the other, and and that's kind of our politics these days. Is the that Trump has sort of um, captured is um, people crave simplicity and a, a clear narrative, even if it's not that real. Well, I also I also think some of it comes down to just the. I mean, as a scientist and communicator, I. I I follow some of this research as well, and I also I also have opportunities to be trained um, in how to how to talk to the media, how to talk to the public, and it's really interesting because when I first started taking these workshops and trainings, and I've had a number of them, um, you know, the sort of NSF uh, there's a, a workshop like Be the Messenger, and it's all about crafting the message. And you know, if a reporter asks you a question, like 
that you that you don't want to answer or that doesn't fit your message, sort of redirect them back to the message. So it's it's all about crafting this, the message that you want to disseminate. And recently, I've been seeing. So you're depart- saying, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you, Jacqueline. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. But so so you're saying that there is a massive climate conspiracy among all climate scientists that are crafting their message to get more grant funding. <laughs> uh, so having not yet been funded, uh, I, I'm skeptical of this conspiracy theory, but I, I will get back to you um, okay. on that. No, but I mean, just the idea of, of being message focused, I think, means, you know, you, you want to stick to the facts and, and you, can, you can create the sound bites and the analogies and deliver the facts in, in tasty little, you know, bonbons um, that the journalist will pick up and then disseminate to the public. And so in contrast to that, the Alan Alda Center for Communication focuses completely on empathy and uses things like um, theater games as ways of getting scientists to develop empathy with an audience. And the, and the, the message is really, you know, your facts don't matter. It's, it's, it's the gut experience and the feelings that people take away from their interactions with you that matter. And you have to build that empathy and that rapport through some common, um, you know, some common, some, something that you have in common. And it's so different. It's such a contrast to the previous kinds of training that I've had. And um, as a former theater geek, I, I, I find that appealing. But it also fits in so nicely with, you know, the kinds of things Andy's talking about in terms of what's actually effective. And at the end of the day, like, if they don't know what an isotope is or um, exactly how many degrees, you know, climate shifted in the quaternary or when mammoths went extinct, I don't really care. But if they have some gut sense that there's some change that's natural and some change that should be alarming, you know, that's I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to go back to the weather example, um, this is a super pet peeve of mine in in meteorology is is that um there's so many meteorologists out there that are just like this is the forecast and please act appropriately and please go to your tornado shelter just because i sent this message out and i I think that all almost all of the social um science coming out over the last several years has shown that that is just not how people make quick decisions under pressure. They want to get confirmation from an outside source, usually their friend, or um, they turn on the TV to see, like, switch multiple channels, see if there's more than one TV channel covering this tornado right now, then heck yes, this is a real threat. Um, If they hear the siren going off at the same time, you know, you need multiple confirmations of something to, to take action that will change your status quo. And that's something that we're just not trained with as, as meteorologists and, and maybe just as, you know, regular people. I don't know. There's lots of lessons that can be passed from one field to another that aren't yet. Um, I've met really smart um, emergency management uh, risk communicators like Dennis Maletti in Colorado who know what moves people and doesn't move people. And, and a lot of those lessons don't move from one sector to another. So this gets to another issue I think we'll probably be exploring, which is uh, not just the challenge and opportunity of scientists or journalists talking to the world out there, but disciplines talking to each other. It's another area where you get, there's a lot of room for improvement. Let's put it that way. So, so what happens then when people don't listen to your message? So that's kind of where the case that we're in right now is that 
you know, emissions are increasing, science is getting more certain that what we're doing to the atmosphere is not good. And yet we have, you know, climate Twitter and people that are just crazy like Donald Trump. So, um, I mean, I'm personally, um, you know, Andy, you mentioned the, uh, the Yale program on climate change communication, and that is for me was was one of those first things that their first report called the six americas project came out about eight years ago and it basically categorizes all of us in terms of of our relationship to climate change um ranging from alarmed to dismissive so uh, the good news is that most people are in that second category of concerned, not quite, you know, like I will do everything to change my life to adapt to climate change, but just, you know, listening. And, um, and that's, I think that's who we should be talking to really. I mean, like that's the bulk of the population. That's the, those are the people that are, you know, with maybe a slight change in their circumstances or a slight change in the science. They're, you know, like, all of a sudden, they're on on uh, in in Central Park, joining you know a climate pro- protest or something. So, um, but instead, you know, we all try to focus on climate denial, and we all try to counter climate denial. And I think it's a waste of time. I don't know. Um, what do you? I agree. Yeah, great. <laughs> what do you What do you think, Jacqueline? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I. You know, just being someone who talks about climate change on the internet, um, you know, usually that's where I run into to most of the denial. And I have a really hard time just uh, just grappling with it. I, I know we'll talk about it in the future um, on this podcast. But, I, you know, I think a lot of it is just it's, it's really not about disagreement um, about science. Oftentimes when I if I do ever engage with people, it ends up being about um you know, disagreement about politics and what we should actually do in terms of legislation. So, you know, regardless of what what's true or not true about climate change, you know, just differences of opinion at the end of the day about the role of government, you know, and that's just that's just another argument to have. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, if you look at all the really big movements we've seen in the past and all the things that we we thought would never get better, you know, whether that's gay marriage or, you know, even a woman's right to vote, you know, I'm sure there were times where people thought that no one would be on board um, and, you know, the movement just moved forward and uh, some people ended up on the wrong side of history. And I, I feel like we can let climate deniers control the dialogue um, or we can ignore them. Um, we can let them bully people into being quiet about climate change or we can figure out ways around it. And for me, you know, just tools like block together on Twitter um, have have quieted down the vast majority of you know crap that I get on the internet and I've been a happier and more productive climate communicator since then can you describe that for me I, I haven't heard about that before oh yes me neither so block together is a tool where you can uh, subscribe to other people's block lists and they're they're anonymous so for example if you know, Andy, if I were to send you the list of all the people I've ever blocked, um, it's a it's an untraceable link, and you click it, and um, 
log in with your Twitter account and it will subs- it will block all those people. And any person I block wow. in the future, you will automatically block without even having to think about it. And so, um, you know, because I'm a, a woman, a feminist, a geek um, on Twitter, a cl- climate scientist, um, you That's know, like I, the perfect storm. I know, right? It's awesome. <laughs> um, so, so on some level, I'm like, climate deniers, come on, you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, most of my death and rape threats come from from you know misogynists or gamer gators or whatever. But um, and so, uh, but you know, to be to be frank, like there are you know, there's there's a lot of abuse out there, and it and it keeps people from talking or being comfortable communicating. And it can just wear you down. Um, you know, there are certain things I know when I tweet or, or write a post that I'm going to get crap. So anyway, so the the block together thing is um, actually during a couple of high profile incidents uh, or discussions on Twitter about some high profile, um, you know, women in science uh, issues. Uh, a couple of my fellow female science communicators were just getting tons and tons and tons of, of, of abuse, um, mostly from men on, on Twitter. And uh, so I was able to subscribe to their block lists. And um, it's, I mean, the, these some of these lists have tens of thousands of people on them. Um, as people sort of, they sort of, it's like a snowball, right? Well, you know, but the downside there, and, uh, and I teach this in my fall online communication course at Pace University is, um, and I understand that issue of being so buffeted that it becomes a distraction, but it feels very bubbleish to me and in the sense that if you let those maybe it's a way to filter out those extreme voices so you can still reach the ones who are who are moderate or who are open to change but to me it feels a little bit like you're going to potentially lose um uh some of the middle as well yeah yeah but i think it, i i think you know for a lot of people are um you know i i personally am someone who it, it doesn't matter so much to me what anyone thinks about what i write about you know my that's my editor's job is to <laughs> you know, censor me if I need to be censored. But, um, but for, for a lot of people, I feel like it's super difficult to just say something that you believe in. And if it, if that, something like that tool can give you more confidence in saying what you think, then that's what, then that's what that person Oh, yeah, yeah. And I I don't, again, there's no one size fits all approach to social media. And for someone like me, um, the skin is already thick and, and, you know, after Rush Limbaugh told me to go kill myself on to set in front of 17 million people in 2009. Yeah, I so, forgot about that. so, you know, um, at any rate that I, 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 am okay with being buffeted sometimes. And there's like, I'll give you an example, Tom Nelson. There's this guy, he's kind of an art. Oh yeah. This yep. skeptic little, he's like one of those little at, buzzing flies. At tan one, two, three. Yeah, so he's a little buzzing fly, but but yeah. it's kind of, you know, I, it's actually weirdly useful for me because like when I fly or I'm saying I'm going somewhere like to Oslo to the Anthropocene Working Group meeting and he's there, oh, Rev- Revkin's taking another fossil fuel uh, journey. And to me, that, that actually helps remind me that I'm still largely dependent on fossil fuels and I still need to tra- travel. So it's like, but that's just the way I've had my own mental construct on, on social media. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good, it's a good point. And, you know, certainly not everyone who... I, I wouldn't call everyone I disagree with on the internet a troll. Um, for me, it's uh, blocking is a useful tool to prevent abuse and harassment. And everyone's, you know, mileage will vary. And um, I think at the end of the day, you know, different people absorb different levels of risk by being vocal on the internet. And we all have to navigate that position um, 
you know, individually. And so, yeah, I mean, whatever works for different people will not necessarily work for everyone. Okay. So, um, you know, I think we're, I think we're there. We're going to close this show with a quick round table that we're tentatively calling citations, uh, where each of us bring a little ray of climate sunshine or anything else that you want into the conversation. Um, no, if any listener has a better name for, for this segment, we're all ears. Hopefully something involves a pun. Um, please let us know. So, um, so, ja- so Jacqueline, what, what is your, your bit for this week? So it's, uh, I, th- I thought that since we're talking about communication, I would, I would talk about a conversation, which is, uh, last week I had the privilege to go talk to s- some folks in the Wabanaki Tribal Council about climate change at their invitation. And, um, you know, they're, they're really interested in how, uh, they're interested in climate adaptation and how climate change will affect their communities. And I actually gave a talk about paleoecology and climate changes in the past and how we can expect species to respond in the future and, and you know, how there's a, a normal range of variability in climate that we can understand from the past and how we have these glacial cycles and how what we're doing is so different than these glacial cycles. And, and after that, this Maliseet man came up to me and said, you know, it's good that you people are finally listening because, you know, we, in my, in my people, we talk about the medicine wheel and how the medicine wheel is like the wheel of the year with different seasons. And, um, right now we're going through a cleansing period and, you know, the cycles that you talk about with glaciers sound like the cycles that happen over cosmic cycles in, you know, my people's oral traditions. And it's, and it was just for me, it was a sort of moment of, wow, we're having this conversation and we're, we have these two very different ways of knowing the universe. And we're finding this common ground with this idea of cycles and sort of doing something to the planet that kicks us out of this natural cycle. And from, from th- that moment was a way to connect the two of us together. And I think that it was just very heartening for me to have a conversation with with this community and the fact that we have scientists and native peoples talking to each other from a place of mutual respect. It wasn't sort of this top down me disseminating knowledge and it wasn't, you know, this sort of disagreement about how we should know or be stewards of the earth. It was just sort of meeting as, as equals and sharing each other's knowledge. And that for me was, was really hopeful that we could have that conversation. And over here in the Hudson Valley, uh, well, actually, it wasn't the Hudson Valley. The thing that excited me the last recently is I, I was in the High Sierras out your way, uh, the West, um, Eric, west of you, and at a meeting on the, the meaning of wilderness in the age of humans, and really interesting. But we went on a field trip down to the world's biggest uh, known giant sequoia grove, and there was a fire crew coming through getting ready to set a prescribed burn of about 800 acres in an area that has seen so little fire that it's unbelievably uh, overgrown and that's not good for the trees. And I started digging in on the literature. I'm doing a piece on this issue of controlled burns and managing fire more than fighting fire. And uh, there's a bunch of papers that show um, lots of potential resilience. You can actually build the resilience in those high Sierra uh, ecosystems through fire, that fire can actually uh, boost resilience to drought because there's fewer uh, water sapping trees per acre. And 
and that ends up making the trees that remain um wait more... so, you, so you get rid of the little trees and leave more room for the big yep, trees. yep and it makes the whole system oh. more robust in the face of drought so there there's ways going forward it and here can it's kind of like replicating what used to be naturally is the way to make the forest more resilient to drought going forward uh, because uh, remember in that area a thousand years ago was um, drier than it is now and it just you know there's ways to move forward that's the thing that 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 speaks to me it says if you study a system carefully you look at its roots you look at the paleo stuff the old it's old old record it's the stuff jacqueline does that matters so much in terms of how you shape policies that might make for a more uh, resilient future yeah and then i guess speaking of resilience um or hope for resilience i guess i'm i'm doing a story right now on uh donald trump's climate views and looking at the polling um it's actually super optimistic at least for me um that more than half of republicans and more than half of trump voters believe climate change is happening believe that we should you know provide tax incentives for renewable energy basically you know like are what we think of as Democrats. <laughs> I mean, it, as far as like supporting supporting ways to make our energy system carbon free, basically. And, uh, you know, that's not what he's saying, but that's what people that will vote for him think. So that's, you know, that can't exist forever, you know. Uh, and, the, and the trend is definitely towards... Um, more support for climate action. So that is my ray of sunshine, I guess, for, for, for the last several days at least. Maybe even of the year, I don't know. So I, 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 I think we'll just leave it there. Um, that's, our, that's our show for this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards and subscribe to our feed on iTunes and SoundCloud. We also want to make this your show as much as possible. If there's something you think that we should discuss, let us know. And that's it. For Andy, Jacqueline, and our producer, Stephen Lacey, I'm Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.